Welcome to the Yogi's Roadmap, a podcast featuring Bhavani Sylvia Maki, an international yoga teacher, musician, and author of the Yogi's Roadmap, the Patanjali Yoga Sutra as a Journey to Self-Realization. I'm Shanae Trudeau, a student of Bhavani and a teacher of yoga. These are conversations from the heart. The Yogi's Roadmap podcast explores yoga as a journey of compressed evolution off the beaten path toward breakthrough experiences. Bhavani believes that engaging in the full science and art of yoga uplifts us, deepens our connection with authentic self and to the source of joy within for personal growth and deep transformation. Bhavani Sylvia Maki has been studying the art and science of yoga for nearly 40 years. In her teaching, she interweaves the insights she has gathered into a holistic exploration of the microcosmic and macrocosmic self. Dedicated to exploring yoga in its complete expression, her teachings are steeped in the traditions of Patanjali's classical eight-limbed yoga, with an emphasis on integrity of alignment and the use of yoga as a powerful tool for healing. This project was conceived out of the desire to have more, deeper, intimate conversations with my teacher and a request from one of Bhavani's own teachers, Rama Joyti Vernon, who once said to her, let's get you out of the jungle and into the world. Bhavani lives on the island of Kauai, Hawaii with her husband, Ray, and their son, Nico. Welcome to the Yogi's Roadmap podcast, off the beaten path toward breakthrough experiences. Okay, this is Sinead Trudeau and Bhavani Maki, and this is episode 13. As always, it's just a, a great joy and honor to have these conversations with my teacher and mentor. And I just want to remind our listeners that it's really helpful to leave a five-star review. It means so much to us, and it helps others find the Yogi's Roadmap podcast. So thank you for your support of this project, dear listeners, and please visit bhavanimaki.com for the latest classes and happenings, both in person and online. Bhavani is the real deal, one-of-a-kind experience to sit in the presence of someone who walks their talk. So Bhavani, here we are. <laughs> Aloha, Shanae. Wonderful to sit with you again. Great. Today, let's talk about God. My first question is, can we really even talk about yoga and exclude the conversation of God, divinity, and something larger? You know, that's a really good question. And I remember being cornered. Um, I was teaching in Montpellier and the gentleman who was hosting me was saying, but it, it's all about God consciousness, isn't it? And it was kind of like, yes, but at, at the same time, you know, it's uh really evident in the yoga sutras it's said to be the crowning glory is sutra um let's see it's sutra 123 um that recognizing that you're not the end all and be all and that you do have power but at the same time you're part of something bigger 
He then goes on in the next few sutras to describe the indescribable in 25 words or less. And the point being that it's your own journey of discovery. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm very tentative about, um, you know, when we hear the word God, it's going to go into our neocortical brain and then we'll have all of our concepts and we have our concepts of God based on our culture, our, um, you know, family of origin, how they, if they had any sensitivity towards grace or divinity or a sense of life's purpose. Um, And sometimes there's also a lot of trauma. So it can bypass the neocortical brain and go into the amygdala. And so we tend to create these stories of our ideas of what divinity is around what we feel we lack to be in ourselves. And you know, even in the way that God is presented often in the Judeo-Christian perspective is that God is compassionate, but very punishing. And, you know, Patanjali is saying that God, and we might say the one, or we might say source or consciousness, you know, whatever word is less of a trigger for us, um, that we are part and parcel of this Purusha. So really, learning to discover through our own perfect imperfections, even our notions of perfection are simply that based on notions and they're largely colored by our, you know, the consensus, um, the, the unspoken tacit diatribe of what perfection looks like. So to get beyond these notions and realizing, um, that there's something bigger than us. And yet also in recognizing that, discovering what we have power over, what we have command over. And really surrender isn't so much just like an apathetic state of laying it in somebody else's lap, but it's about, you know, having self-intimacy, understanding where your longings are, that's key to understanding this divinity because our longing is the way that we connect to it. Um, You know, it's longing for something more primal, for something more raw, something more original and innate within us. And by connecting to those longings, that becomes, that's what completes the circle. So by understanding, you know, like, okay, where am I? Where are my interior longings? What are the fractures behind them? How are they indicative of my yearning to reclaim my wholeness and find the sacredness and something that maybe at one point I viewed to be um, blasphemous or injurious or in which I was a victim? How can I sanctify this experience to see it as part of my healing? So in developing that intimacy, we have an awareness of ourselves. We see what's going on in the world. We can reflect of like, what's what's my personal kuleana? What's my personal responsibility? What isn't? Is it helpful for me to offer my good graces or am I impeding the natural ripening process and flow of another person's development? And I'm, am I enabling? 
When is it time to act? How can I act with the most efficacy and without um, invading another person's personal space? Um, or trying to assume the role of being of a higher order or intelligence, and then to act fully in our hearts, in our minds, with the skill that we've developed, and then to let it go and see what happens. So, um, you know, this journey, I, I feel like we discover this divinity through our own process of going into that underworld and unearthing in ourself, where are these frictions? You know, where are my splintered off from myself? Where have I alienated? And I had a friend who used to say, when you feel distant from God, who moved? So that distance is actually part of the polarity, which so often we're trying to neutralize but when we can really feel the potency of the polarity of divinity and humanity, it creates a wonderful field in between of dynamic response and transmission. And real, we realize the opposites are held within that oneness. So that pressure really gives us the power of transcendence. And it's in discovering our humanity that we find divinity. Um, you know, so it's very difficult for us because we tend to look at things as black and white, but realizing that it's light and shadow that both give us a sense of purusha, which means to fill with the dawning realization that, you know, at the source of our being, um, it said that prana is the energy of Purusha or of divinity that is pulling creation through its evolutionary phases. So when we discover that, you know, in that, in that potent field of polarity, which is really a field of resonance, that energy, instead of lifting the cap off of it and just, just describing it as right or wrong or sacred or profane, is where there's an alchemy that happens and we can tap into an energy field that is just, it's so much bigger than we think it is. It's, it's not limited to our thoughts. And that's why I find it so wonderful that, you know, Patanjali, he, he just limits himself to 25 words because how can you describe this primal sense of awe you know, and, and we're, we're paying attention. There's so many unexplainable and wonderful events and people that we see it everywhere. So our ability to participate in the whole of life um, is the way that we awaken our own spirituality. And it said that when we can see through the eyes of everyone, we're looking through the eyes of divinity. So yeah, it's a grand love affair and, you know, we have to show some interest and it's kind of like, you know, with yoga, we're kind of courting ourselves, the parts of ourselves that are alienated and we're creating that, um, you know, wonderful bond of relationship, which has the elements of coming together and autonomy simultaneously. 
it's a vast subject. <laughs> it's so vast. And you're doing a great job. And I have two questions. One was about, you talked about this primal, um, the primal longing. And so then I ask like, what's the difference between that and desire? And perhaps desire is more superficial and maybe you could parse that out a little more. You know, I think a lot of it has to do with semantics and how we use words, but, um, you know, if, if this desire or this prana is, um, you know, what's moving and evolving us, it's, it's more of a deep thing that isn't something that is necessarily ever satiated, um, because you can't hold on to it. And it's what's moving us to evolve in life. And it said that love is an action in which we're willing to grow, not only for ourselves, but for the collective, the wholeness and the well-being of others. So, you know, when we, it's hard to know, but I think with time and, you know, trial by fire of life, we'll find, okay, yeah, I, I had a desire for something and then I got it. And do I still feel empty? And then there's deeper desires that don't let us off the hook. And it's something that we can't always put our finger on. You know, it's not something again, that, that is tangible that we can hold on to, but it's this longing that opens the channels for relationship and for true communion. So, you know, this is something that I grappled with a lot and, and I've shared with you is, um, does that mean that certain desires can't be realized in the physical pain plane? No, that's not necessarily true. And when I was struggling with my own fertility, I really self-like flagellated self-flagellation. Is that what it's called? Am I saying it right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, cause I can see myself actually flagellating like the unrest about my desire to have a child. And yet, and it's not necessarily everyone's desire, but intrinsically I knew that I wouldn't really experience the fullness of love until I had a child. And a lot of that is, you know, healing my own my own traumas for my own childhood. And another part of it was, you know, my life had been pretty narcissistic. It was so much, you know, even though it was focused in service and in yoga, so much of it was like my path and doing all of this. So, you know, by, by serving someone else who is really reliant on you, who, you know, a child is going to really, it's like being in psychoanalysis every day because you see those parts of yourself and you're going, oh my God, I'm doing the same thing. I thought I'd do better. The exhaustion, all of that. It's like, they inspire you to um, be the best version of yourself. It's kind of like teaching a yoga class. A lot of times we teach yoga and we're really speaking to ourselves and it's an affirmation. So you're affirming your own, um, your own existence, your own place in the lineage, where you're paying it forward. And in that, that love in which you're willing to sacrifice your own agenda and your own creature comforts for the posterity of, of 
culture of humanity, um, there's a shift from that narcissism, which we all come in with, to realizing that, okay, I am serving someone, I am serving something greater than me. You know, our hopes and our dreams are there in our children. And that also, we might go, oh my God, I'm loading that on them as well. But just realizing that this is the legacy of love. So we've all come in with this seed of wanting to share love, of wanting to grow together, of wanting to feel our oneness. And through relationship, you know, that's the true test of our yoga, we get to actually embody it and express it in a really authentic and human way. So that's pretty primal just right there is this sense of of wanting to procreate, of wanting to, um, you know, share, to lift others up, to be in community, to be in communion. And that's where we extend outside of ourselves and our little controlled world, which sometimes happens within our high and holy. And I'm saying this, you know, with a smirk, spiritual practice. And it's such a wonderful description of what you were saying, which brings me to my second point in terms of really experiencing all of life. So, and, you know, like you talk a lot about not only the, you know, high and holy, but also the deaths and the heartbreak and the, like the, the deep, um, stuff like internal stuff we have to wade through and often um like when i'm when i'm in your classroom there's an allowance for all of those parts of my humanity to be present the good the bad the ugly which i really appreciate and at the same time so in the general yoga world which thank goodness it's like we're not necessarily a part of, but I do want to give voice to it. It's like the image of looking good. And one of my teachers uh, used to say, looking good, going nowhere. And (laughs) (laughs) And so like this, this, um, this piece of staying on the surface and not going, you know, into the depths of our own underworld And also, you know, this way of living that kind of excludes the whole picture of all of those deeper longings and desires. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it's like, well, how do we contact this, you know, Patanjali doesn't use the word God. He uses Purusha Vishesha, which is a special type of consciousness. Um, that we discover by moving Ishvara Pranidana, moving deeply and feeling into the innermost core of our heart. So how do you, how do you access this energy field when so much of our attention is fixated on the tangible world of substance and this inner um, relationship is not really lauded as um you know, it's not going to, it's not going to go on to your, um, your syllabus of accomplishments, etc. It's something that's very interior. And the way that we experience Purusha is by connecting to that prana. And I've mentioned before, pranadana, which is like bowing 
is where we offer our prana. And so by experiencing and expressing through our organism, sensation is the way we experience pranayama. Sentience is the hallmark of this special force or energy of consciousness. So we experience divinity through our sentiments, through our senses, through the fear, through the longing, through the aversion, through the attraction. Um, you know, even Avidya kind of missing the point and having, um, you know, like prioritize things that don't really matter is said to be the veiling power of really seeing. So it's like we step outside of time and by really getting in touch with ourselves, the past, present, and the future are all kind of like um, truncated into this divine eternal present moment. And we can see things from a larger perspective rather than linear. We see kind of like the gestalt of our life experience. So by feeling into that stuff is the way that we access our divinity. And it's really wonderful because when we let go of our ideas of an external nexus of authority, Patanjali says we discover this in our own heart. And in the yogic teachings, it even goes on to say that Purusha or Atman, which is the individual expression of this supreme consciousness, is located in the heart. And it's about the size of a thumb, which of course isn't meant to be taken literally, but it's like, how do we get into that innermost core of our heart? I remember reading, you know, this sutra, I think it's 136, and it said, go into that place in the innermost core of your heart, which is untouched by sorrow. And when I started to you know, sit with my heart, it was really difficult. I was like, oh my God, all I can feel is the wounding. All I can feel is the scarring. I couldn't even feel into the bottom of my heart because there was so much anxiety about like, what can I do to prove my sincerity and that I'm worthy of this divine love? And then realizing that like, you know, there's nothing that I could do to be more deserving of it. It was simply to take that time to develop intimacy with myself. And of course, psychotherapy proves invaluable because a good psychotherapist sees your wholeness, even though you just come in there with all this dissonance and interference and friction. It's like they remind you of your wholeness. They remind you of the complexity. So then we see that these imperfections are a way that we self-regulate and that we can tune in. So when we get over the neurotic self-negation, we just see, all right, this is part of my understanding of light and shadow. That's the way I interpret things. Um, then we can really start to develop this intimacy. And it's so wonderful. Um, you know, in that sutra, one of the translators said, when we enter into the innermost core of the house, 
which I believe it's the, the Vedas describe as being like a tiny lotus shaped house in the core of our heart, that there Purusha and Prakriti sit face to face and embrace each other. So this is sentience and this is our nature, our human nature. You know, as realized as we are, we're all going to have to face hunger and thirst and mortality and disease and separation and loss. So we can't bypass that. But when they come together, there is true communion and we feel it cellularly. The way we access divinity is a full body knowing. It doesn't happen up here in the head. It happens in the core of our being and extends from cell to cell through all channels. And this is that sense of Atha yoga. Um, it lights up our cells. It's a light bulb moment. And there's a, there's a, a gut knowing that is unshakable. And of course we want to hang on to it, right? Yeah. Ah, thank you so much. Can you talk a little bit more about Purusha and Prakriti and that their, their energies that are complementary? Yeah. So um, Prakriti, Purusha would be sentience, consciousness, and it said it's never created, it never dies, it's... Um, it's already reached its fullness. And bicha means a seed. So it's the seed within us. But niratishayam, it's unexcelled in its completeness. So there's no, it doesn't even need to evolve. And that's where we come from. However, prakriti is like, you know, the body that we're born into, even the mind, according to yoga, is a manifestation of nature. The mind is often misappropriated as being interpreted as consciousness itself. But we need the mind to understand consciousness, but then to realize that consciousness um, exceeds the mind. And I think I've spoken about this before where, you know, the ultimate viveka kyati or discernment is that behind the mind is conscience and we need to develop that conscience, but then we often confuse conscience as consciousness itself. So conscience is always going to like, well, what's the best time to respond? Is it up to me to respond? Um, you know, is this right? Is this wrong? Where conscience is is held within kind of like that that balance consciousness supersedes it so you know how do we mature our system to get beyond these notions and these ideas to have direct experience of this purusha we have to learn to develop this internal relationship and the way that we feel um, the connection is known as anugraha. Anu means to flow. It means the next step. And graha means living there. So it's grace. And we find this grace through the formless 
we access the formless through direct experience of our tissues. So our, you know, we have to evolve our system and we're learning to evolve our nervous system. So much of yoga is developing enough fortitude in the nervous system in which we can look into the shadows of our being. We can look into the formlessness, the namelessness. Um, and by doing that, it said, you know, by, by developing that intimacy and that capacity to look into what most people don't even want to touch, um, then it said that grace begins to flow inwards to us. And that process is super humbling. But humility is really the precursor, and it's not an idea. It's just recognizing what isn't within our power and realizing that something is bigger than us is pulling us along. So our issue is that when we come in, we're convinced of not being good enough. And maybe part of that is just biological. We're evolving. I mean, I see it within my child. And I can really see how he's neurologically developing. And he didn't have a rational mind for a long time. He just didn't have the neuropathways for it. So we have to go into rationality. We have to become logical. Um, then we also have to realize that life is even beyond logic. We have to grow out of our narcissism. So there's kind of an evolution of our system and our nervous system to be able to see into the strata that are less obvious and yet at the same time are perceptible through clarity within ourselves and the development of our senses. Yeah. <laughs> Where does devotion, faith, and reverence show up? So it it, it feels like, you know, it, and again, we're putting words to these, this indescribable sense and sensation, but in the, it, and, and maybe this goes along with, you know, the, the, pra the practical and the pragmatic nature of yoga and the practice and the dedication and these elements of faith and devotion I'm not certain I can actually like touch, like put my hands on it. And it's certainly a mood inside myself. Well, I think, you know, or I feel it's really interesting because it said that there's a, a rotation of consciousness that happens. So we're aware, you know, we become aware of our needs. We come in aware of our needs, you know, just our organism. And we're very devoted to that. And then we have our first gods, which are our parents who are telling us what is a value. You know, there's, there's a sense of, of hierarchy in that, what's important, what's valuable in life. And we try to fulfill their needs. And then we realize that like, or these exterior definitions that are projected onto us by our, by the media, et cetera. And then there's still that longing inside of us. So Patanjali says, we either chase that longing and we realize divinity and grace through following that longing, or we disassociate from it and we become flat and a shadow of who we are. We don't have the passion. 
So, so much of it is the passion. And part of passion is that, like realizing that these things are not going to let you go. And that it's, it's a greater wish that is moving through you. There's something that's pulling you through, pulling through you. And that's the sense of prana. So it's very interesting because, um, you know, when there's this shift and we maybe need to be seasoned and gone through a lot of trial by fires and lifetime, be cooked by life, be wounded by life, have our heart broken. Um, what happens is that in hindsight, we might start to see that there was a larger wholeness that was pulling us along all the time and things that we really tried to resist or would have rather have not experienced was part of this unfolding into love. So then we, it, it's lovely because in the tantric expression, it said that, you know, the goddess who is the, the engine or the creatrix of creation, she is all the time meditating on us. That, you know, as much as we think like, oh, I made a mistake here or I made a mistake there, we realize that these mistakes were Im imperative to our own unfolding, to the dismantling of our sense of like, it's all on me and I got to make it happen and I got to prove myself worthy. So as we start to, you know, sense that like, wow, this was, this was all part of my mystical adventure of learning to connect to the core source energy, I've been guided all along. So we discover that grace and there's kind of like a trust that develops in the process, even though it's difficult, you know, the yogi's like, all right, I'm not going to avoid things because they're difficult because the real jewels in life are, they require sacrifice. They're hard earned. Then in that way of being like, okay, this is bigger than me, but I know something beautiful is being pulled out of me that I wouldn't birth on my own. That's the sense of devotion that we're committed to this beneficial or beneficent force. We recognize it. And that's the true test of our devotion. And certainly we're going to go through the dark night of the soul. You know, so in questioning that, um, faith is open to question. And it's not so much about blind faith. It's about recognizing that like, okay, I have the power to question and I have the power to source the answers for myself. So it, I don't even know, I think more and more we realize that it isn't a choice, but it's just really a place of being raw, open and transparent. And it naturally happens over time. Love is something that we grow into, you know, and so much of the way that love is presented is as like this serendipitous meeting and honeymoon and riding off into the sunset and living happily ever after. And that's where the stories end. But anybody who's been in a long-term relationship knows that's when the story begins and how we keep kind of turning back to love because the other option 
is dying a slow, painful death and, and shutting down. I hope that was helpful. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely helpful. And one of the exercises you give in your yoga sutra mentorship group is to write down all the names of God in every language, in every tradition that one can remember. And I love this exercise because what I found is that there's not one way to describe the indescribable. And yet it was really fun to try. And so I love that you talk about the goddess and maybe you can speak a little bit more about the feminine principle of God. You know, sometimes I find um, that the, just the conversation of the goddess is, is a brand new one for our Western, you know, mostly Christian oriented minds. But in the, in the, you know, text that yoga comes from, it's like the, the masculine and the feminine are Im implied as always together and always bonded. And maybe you can talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. Um, my father is a linguist. One of the ways that he would study a language was the Old Testament. And, you know, he's Greek. It was actually written in ancient Greek. And in the original Greek, the pronoun is a neuter form. So it's neither masculine nor feminine. And as we've seen so much historically, there's a hijack. So then it becomes male. Um, you know, then women aren't even allowed in certain places of worship, or they're not allowed to conduct the service of worship. And there's been like this schism. But as you mentioned, um, you know, in, in many other devotional um, traditions, it's not allocated, it's, it's non-binary. So it's the one among the many which holds all of the parts. So even, you know, maybe we need to emphasize the feminine aspect because she's been relegated to, you know, mopping the temple floors or whatever and bring that up. But really seeing that, um, you know, Purusha is, is bigger than the dichotomy. And that, you know, it encompasses the impulse for creativity as well. So there really isn't a separation there. And one of my favorite renderings of divinity is Arda Shiva, where Shiva is half male and half female. And it's so interesting, you know, when we, you know, in a relationship, let's say like of a, a, a male and a female, and, and this, you know, also applies to non-binary it's not so easy to just categorize things in that way. We all have these capacities. And I feel like a big part of this movement in stepping into non-binary um, identification is that we're owning our wholeness, that we can have all these aspects within ourselves. So, you know, I think it's just careful. We need to be careful when we're looking at the opposite side, the shadow side, that we don't devalue the other aspect as well, that we want to have both aspects of yin and yang, of receptive and of proactive, of internal and external, held equally in the altar of our hearts. Yeah, thank you so much for speaking to that. It's, yeah, it's just really important 
to remember those qualities. So in episode six, you um, were speaking about the nuanced elements of exchange, particularly as it applies to money. But as we're talking now, I'm like, wow, it could really be in this realm, you know, talking about the internal and the external qualities and even the qualities of the divine. Um, so you're talking specifically about the exchange of goods for services, like a yoga class. And you mentioned a quote from Martine Prechtel, who said, we've lost the art of courtship. And can you say more about this? Because you spoke about students who bring flowers and I immediately sparked that this is a gesture of feeding something larger, a gesture of gratitude and reverence and devotion. And it's, it's almost like courting the divine also. So yes, you were talking about it in the context of money, but um, there's, yeah, there's many elements you could say here. Yeah. Um, you know, I love what the Sufis say, which we are all beggars at the foot of God. And really yoga, you know, when we say namaskara or namaste, is recognizing the divinity in another. And we grow through that relationship. There's also this idea that we should be completely, and this is also woven into the sutras, you know, and, and can be kind of misinterpreted that we should be completely self-reliant and self-sufficient. But no one stands alone. We need each other. We need each other as a species. We need each other just within, you know, the practical aspects of life. So, you know, there's this also this sense that we should have instant relationships and relationships have kind of been watered down to, I mean, I have friends on Facebook that I don't even know who they are. You know what I mean? Um, but we're friends and this kind of interaction that happens through the interweb in which there really isn't an exchange of energy. Um, even the way that people meet, it's like they don't meet face to face and I've never done it, but I guess swiping left is no go. I don't know. Swiping left or swiping, swiping right. Right. Um, so how can we kind of get out of this bubble of isolation? And we know that social media really creates depression and more alienation to extending ourselves outwards. Um, you know, when someone moves into our neighborhood or down the street, do we introduce ourselves? You know, how do we initiate meeting somebody? How can we, um, you know, as we talked, as you mentioned, like beautify the space, share beauty, share our own good graces and aspects, um, you know, even taking a moment to share some extra fruit or a sweet that we've prepared, the way that we dress, the way that we present ourselves when we enter a space, can we lift the space up in the way that we speak to each other? You know, really being present with another person and, you know, looking into their eyes and turning our body to them and, you know, maybe putting on some nice earrings or a nice you know, shirt or blouse or whatever, um, you know, to share our good graces and even praise, you know, the good at another person like, oh, I saw that you, 
you know, are now living down the street or you're next door, or I've seen you around town. And I'm just so curious who you are. I love the way that you, um, you hold yourself, you know, just basically, and, and Martin Prechtel, you know, he's wonderful. He goes on to say about how they would praise like, oh, you have lashes, like, like the sea foam is kissing the shore and your radiance is like the sunrise, you know, they go really over the top. We don't want to freak people out, but just really to, you know, say like, wow, I'm really curious about who you are. I like your energy and, um, you know, welcome and let me introduce myself. So we want to show that, you know, extend ourselves. There's curiosity, there's interest, um, make time to get to know who this person is, make time to share your, your dreams, your concerns, that there's true heart to heart interactions, not through social media. So we show our curiosity and our interest and then there's even the sense of like, okay, when we, and, and asking questions about another person and also sharing about ourselves. And by doing that, we create um, lines of communication and transmission and communion. And we become, can become more natural and relaxed and even share our own humanity you know, start to disclose more parts of ourself and, you know, maybe even say like, I've been here so long and I've been, you know, really excited to meet new people in my life. And I've been living an insular life and I, you know, want to open up. Would you like to get to have some tea? I'd love to learn more about you. And then as we do that, then we start to engage with that other person and show up and be sensitive to the needs of another person. Um, and yet also have respect for autonomy and acceptance. And we might even start to share and admit like where we're struggling or where we need help, um, but without necessarily asking for it. And realize that like in this sharing, we're not just looking for a fling, but we're looking for a growing relationship. So we might follow through with our actions or extend ourselves, not like let's do lunch sometime, but like really have time and show our loyalty to wanting to foster this relationship um, and expressing gratitude for the relationship. So it's really making ourselves available to get to know somebody. I think there's an idea that we should have instant relationships. I know for me that it takes a long time to get that level of intimacy it can take 10 years. Um, and then, you know, just feeling how we can relax into that place of unknowing another, of not knowing another, and really start to, um, you know, just share our appreciation of that other person and what they bring. And isn't that where divinity shows up? I mean, it certainly does for me. <laughs> yeah, it totally does, you know, and um, I'm not a, a Bible scholar, but I remember reading that when two or more are gathered, I am there, you know, it's that sense of communion. And that sense of namaskara, where it's like, it's easier for me to recognize the divinity in you than it is in myself. 
And sometimes it's easier to love our neighbor than it is to love ourselves. But in that sharing of our love, and I remember um, being like, I don't know, under 16, and I was infatuated with this guy. And uh, there were like these amazing spring thunderstorms in the Midwest. They were just like electric and all of the flowers just explode. And one night, like in the dark of night, I pilfered flowers from all the neighborhood gardens and I created this huge love mandala of flowers in his front yard. And I never told him who it was. We ended up, you know, getting together later. He was just a wonderful boyfriend. Um, But like just doing something like that, this incredible expression of love and of beauty without him knowing was so wonderful. And I, you know, as I'm sharing this now, I can only imagine how waking up to something like that would put you in touch with that primal sense of like, wow, like this is amazing. And who would do this for me? And and maybe not even knowing, but just knowing that you're loved and appreciated, those it it, it just kind of adds to the magic of it. That's so lovely. (laughs) Yes, John Krug, it was me. (laughs) But, you know, doing that, those acts of, you know, service, it's just, you know, um, this, this woman, um, I really like her work. Her name's Dr. Pat Allen. And uh, she wrote a couple of books and um, she does this like LA talk radio, but she says, you know, baking a cake, you know, I bake the cake for me, for you, because I enjoy doing it. And then I enjoy giving it to you. And I love that. It's like, yes, I'm baking it for me, for you. And both of those are true. And it's just, that's, I love that. Yeah. It feels good to do something loving, you know, and we do it for the sake of love itself. So it's interesting, even this idea of courtship, like, you know, am I doing this to get something? Well, yeah, certainly. But what I'm getting is the reciprocity or even um, that sense of praising the beauty around me, the beauty in another. And honestly, I got so much joy out of making that mandala for him. You know, it was, it it became so much bigger than just like this, this, um, you know, like what's the word this this segue into like a romantic gesture it was really just like feeling the passion of doing this and also doing it by hidden by night like a thief in the night like a thief in the night who stole other people's you know beautiful flowers Um, (laughs) but it just it just really felt fun to be kind of like almost like the hand of grace because it was hidden Mm -hmm. and I didn't want the acknowledgement from the other Mm -hmm. I just they would feel joy and I got to be the vehicle of it. Yeah. I love it. Anything else you want to say? This is a huge, huge topic. And I just wanted to give, give ourselves an opportunity to mention it, you know, give, give it some reverence on the podcast, but if there's anything else that you want to say. Yeah. Um, I guess that 
you know, we are really invited to redefine ourselves as a divine being in feeling into our humanity and recognizing our potential. Um, and then how we can use these wonderful vehicles of our thoughts, our deeds, and our words to reconnect with this masterful, miraculous potential. And that by offering ourselves into that, we are already feeling ourselves as something larger. And it, it's always going to come from a sense of longing. So I've, I've, you know, quoted this sutra many times, um, you know, where we live with a sense of missingness. And I love that Rumi po poem. I'm sure you know it, Love Dogs. So, um, you know, a seeker every night, he's out there calling out the name of God, Allah, Allah. And a cynic walks by and he says, Tell me, have you ever heard anything in response? And so it's said that this great bhakti or this devotee, he ends up falling into a, a sleep of confusion. And then one night in his dreams, Kidir, who's the guide of souls, comes and visits him. And he says, why did you stop your praising? And the, the bhakti, he says, because I never heard anything in response. And Kidir says, well, listen to the moan of a dog for its master. That is the return response, is your sense of longing. And so the Sufis say we become like a dog in our loyalty. And we're always sniffing out love, God, grace all the time. And no matter what clothes the master is wearing, the dog recognizes its master. So we start to attune ourselves, but we're always sniffing it out. And, um, and that, that comes from a deeper place of desire and a deeper place of yearning. So this was a, you know, this was not an intellectual realization for me. It was a revelation that that longing is what opens up the lines of connection for grace to be revealed. And the longing comes from my place of wholeness. It's something primal. It's something that we've all been seated with. It's not what's wrong about me, but it's about what's right. And this is what allows us to trust with courage, humility, and patience. Um, and to realize, you know, as they say, amor fati, that we can love our fate instead of trying to fix the problem, realize that the solutions are being discovered through our human experience and by getting in touch with where we feel like, oh, I want to get free or, oh, I want to experience greater authenticity. Um, so, yeah. Oh, it's been so wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really deeply appreciate these conversations. Thank you. I want to share a quote from Sean um, Acker, which is, the more we love each other, the more we bring God into the world.
we're courting God. <laughs> always. Yes. Always, all where, <laughs> all the time. Okay. Namaskara. Namaskara. Thank you for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to take these teachings on for yourself. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend. For more information about Bhavani Maki and her online and in-person teachings, including the Yoga Sutra Wisdom School, online Patanjali Yoga Sutra Mentorship, and her continuing classes and trainings, please visit www.bhavanimaki.com. That's B-H-A-V-A-N-I-M-A-K-I. You will find many resources, including sound bites of the Patanjali Yoga Sutra Samadhi Pada and Sadhana Pada for free, as well as a free yoga class. Thank you again. We hope you've enjoyed these conversations from the heart. Please join us as we continue to walk this revelatory path into deep personal inquiry through yoga as a path toward our unique, true spiritual awakening. Jaladhar Sani Basundara Gatram Jalaruhamitra Jashatru Netram Jaladhar Sani Basundara Gatram Jalaruhamitra Jashatru Netram Kalushapa